Good evening, you can open your Bibles to Exodus 17, and we'll be in that text in just a few moments. I had never sung that, that hymn before. Uh, that hymn has to be rooted in John 17, where Jesus talked about all the world will know that Jesus was sent from the Father when Christians have unity uh, with one another. And as we were singing that song, I was thinking about the months leading up to my conversion, when I was getting to meet the first Christians I had ever met before, and when I saw the way that they spent time together and the way that they showed love towards one another, it started to prick my heart and show me that there must be some other way to live, and it must be something that's come from outside of this world. And when Samantha and I got married and then moved down here, we got to experience more of that family. When we moved to San Diego, we experienced more of that family, and then Atlanta, and now Bowling Green. I've been a Christian now for almost 15 years, and uh, Christians have been the best people that I've ever known. And so I'm thankful to God for times that we can get together and think about the things that matter the most, and for the way that so many of you have impacted my life. For tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, a short story shortly after the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. But of all the countries in the world, which country would you guess files the most lawsuits every year? It's the United States at about 40 million a year. And most of those lawsuits are over car accidents. But we live in a society that's accustomed to whenever you have been wronged in some way, you better get something out of it. And surely there's times where some of those lawsuits are justified. I used to work as a paralegal where I helped my lawyer file or uh, sue certain people because of different things that have happened. There's times and places for that sort of thing to happen. But we live in a culture that still is expecting that when you've been hurt, you better get something out of it. In this short story, in the book of Exodus, we have the Israelites filing a lawsuit against God. Have you ever filed a lawsuit against God? It's maybe not anything that we would want to say, oh yeah, surely I've done that. I don't even know what courthouse to go to in order to be able to accomplish something like that. But there's a metaphorical sense in which we can make the same mistake that the Israelites make in this text. And this can especially happen when we're going through some kind of trial or some kind of tribulation, and the difficulties in our life can cause us to question God or challenge God in such a way where effectively what we're doing is we're filing a lawsuit against Him. Before we read this text, I want to show you something about the context of this. The Israelites have been delivered from Egypt, and after they were delivered from Egypt, they have the Song of Moses where they praise God for His power to have destroyed the Egyptian army. And shortly after they're delivered, they meet four problems in the wilderness. Uh, one of them was the Scripture reading where they lack water. And then they throw the log into the water, and then that's not normally how you make water good, and that shows you that God is the one that's behind that. The next chapter, they lack bread. But because manna is going to be a regular thing that God sends every day, uh, that problem is taken care of. But where's the water going to come from every day? So now you've got the problem with the water again, and that's going to be the text that we look at. And then after that story, you've got the attack of the enemies, the Amalekites, 
But we're looking at this story here, Exodus 17, 1 through 7, where they question and they challenge God, and they file a lawsuit against him. Let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and this is where we will stay in this whole lesson. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and, shall strike the, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Israel's 40 years in the wilderness is bookended by a story of water coming from the rock. In Exodus 17, the first time we're looking at in this lesson, where Moses strikes the rock and then the water comes forth from it. And then in Numbers chapter 20, when the 40 years of wandering is pretty well over, Moses has another scene where the Israelites are complaining, and he's going to strike the rock twice in that story, and water will once again come from the rock to provide for the people. Now, there's some differences between these two stories that is interesting to point out. In this story, Moses is told, you shall strike the rock. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, it says, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. The stories both have different instructions. In the first one, he's supposed to strike the rock. In the second one, he's supposed to speak to it, tell the rock to bring forth the water. Maybe there's something even more miraculous where, you know, if you strike it, it's like, okay, well, uh, you know, that was more bombastic, or there, we could see that there was more action. But if you tell it to do it, that seems more impressive. I don't know if that's maybe part of the reason for that, but that's one difference here. Another difference is that these are the different generations in the wilderness. This first story takes place for the first group of people that all died in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. But in Numbers chapter 20, this is the new generation that's been raised up. Now, those are some differences, but there's some similarities between these two stories. One of them being that Moses uses this staff. This staff that was used during the ten plagues, this staff that was associated with with crossing the Red Sea, the staff that was shown to be a symbol of great authority is used in both of these stories. And in both stories, God uses a rock to provide people with water. Now, why does it matter that their 40 years of their time in the wilderness is bookended by a story like this? You see that in both stories, the people are complaining. In both stories, the people have sinful attitudes. But what is it that God has done at the beginning and the end and all the way through their time in the wilderness. He's continued providing for them. 
You see the goodness of God as he keeps giving them the things that they need in in their their time in the wilderness. And you think about this in your life, that there's a sense in which we live in the wilderness. We've been delivered from the tyranny of Egypt. And now we're wandering in the wilderness. And though we might have ungodly attitudes at times and struggle with it more than we'd like to admit, what is it that God continues to do for us? Now, we'll say more about that in a little bit. I don't know if on social media you've seen this picture, but there's a lot of people that have shared this kind of thing on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, Facebook. And some people have suggested that this is the very rock that Moses struck. Because after all, you can see that slice down the middle of it. And that seems like a place where you could strike it and then boom, it opens up. There's a lot of possible problems with that, but we don't really know where exactly this rock was or which rock it exactly was. And even though this isn't the main point of this text or of this lesson, I do think that there's a helpful point in bringing out this idea. That in um, trying to defend Christianity, in trying to defend the things that, that we see in the Scriptures, have you ever seen Christians resort to arguments that we can't really prove? Uh, we got to be careful about that sort of thing. I've seen Christians, and when I was in Atlanta, I did a lot of studies with atheists, and there was a lot of arguments that I used to think were pretty good arguments that I just won't use anymore. And I think we need to be careful about this sort of thing and not using arguments to try to prove that this story actually happened. We don't need that rock to prove that this story really happened. But this picture at least shows you like what this region may have looked like, just a little bit of that region. So try to imagine that. They're in this area. They don't have much water. They're going through this difficulty. And the text that we're looking at can be outlined in this way. Verses 1 through 3 show you a complaint that the people make. Verses 4 through 6, first part of verse 6, is a trial. And then the rest of verse 6 and then verse 7 is an execution. All of this is trial, attorney, complaint, lawsuit kind of imagery and language. And maybe you've not looked at this text in this way before, but as we go through this, I think you'll see that this is the imagery of what Moses is documenting for us as this was written down. So try to imagine this scene here. Imagine that you're Moses and you've got two million people that, that need food, they need water, and they're camping and they're following the cloud and they're following uh, the pillar of fire. They're going from place to place in verse 1 according to the commandment of the Lord. In other words, God is the one that brought them to Rephidim. They are exactly where they should be because they are exactly where God told them to be. And it's in this location that they come to Moses and they begin to quarrel with him. And you might think that that word for quarrel just generally is like the the, the generic term to complain or to, to have some kind of grievance or problem with somebody. But this word's more technical than that. This means to lodge a complaint or make a charge as if it were some kind of a courtroom scene. And in verse 4, Moses, when he complains back to God, he says that these people are ready to execute me. They have their stones ready and they, I think they're, they're going to kill me. And so when they make this quarreling, we shouldn't look at this as just merely them complaining, but there's a little bit more formality to what they're doing here. Well, what's the charge? 
Give us water to drink. We're thirsty. In fact, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die of thirst? We don't trust your leadership. We think that it's going to be because of you that all of us are going to die in the wilderness. The irony of that is it's exactly because of their sinfulness that all of that generation will die in the wilderness, but they don't have eyes to see that. They're just bitterly angry in this text. You know, a lot of people have suggested, I, I, I've seen some younger people at times, suggest that if there was really bad problems with the food supply and uh, the trucking industry and we had no food and water, that we would just all do really nice humanitarian things and we would all just take care of each other. Wouldn't we do that? No, we wouldn't. If we were starving and we had nothing to drink, we would be picking up our stones and we'd be ready to go start killing some people. That's what you should expect in a society. And can you imagine these people in this situation? Moses says something back to them to help them see how serious this is. When he says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Do you not realize that when you say something to me, that it's not just to me that you're saying this. God has chosen me to be the leader in the wilderness. And when you make a complaint against me, you're actually making a complaint against God. Now, I don't know what this looked like in verse 4. After Moses says his words to the people, does he go and seclude himself like kind of in the vicinity of the people? Does he start crying out to God in front of all the people? I don't know what all of this looked like, but this trial starts then where Moses and God determine, or God tells Moses what the determination is, how to deal with this. Moses asks God, what shall I do with these people? I think they're going to try to kill me. What do we do? God's instructions are instructions that for a long time I just pay, didn't pay enough attention to. Here's the trial. Here's, here's what the decision is going to be. Here's the verdict. Okay, Moses, I want you to take some of the elders of Israel, not all of them, I want you to take some of them, and I want you to take the staff. Uh, I want you to take the staff that has been used as a demonstration of the power of God, and I want you to go to this rock at Horeb. And when, when you go to this rock at Horeb, I will stand or I will go on the rock. So try, I don't know how God was going to manifest himself. In some way or another, his glory was going to go on the rock. And uh, you see that in verse 6. I will stand before you there. And then here's the phrase, on the rock. And then God tells Moses that when I'm on this rock, I want you to take that staff and strike the rock. Like, can you imagine God's glory, like hovering over this pulpit, and then somebody gets up here with a rod, and they start striking the pulpit? Would that look sacrilegious? Would that look like something that you ought not do? And here's Moses being told to do that very thing. So the next Part of the verse just says, Moses did so. We don't get all the details of what everybody was thinking, but you imagine Moses passing by the people with some of the, the, the leaders. He gets the rod. God's glory comes over the rock. Israel can see. The other elders can see. And he strikes it. And as soon as he strikes it, what happens? This water comes gushing out of the rock. 
So much so that up to two million people are able to find living water in this, in this barren place. So much so that I would even assume that the animals and the livestock that they have with them are able to get all the water that they need. And I don't know how Moses does this, but after they all quench their thirst, does, is Moses just standing there? with like a grimace on his face, and he's looking at all of them and says, okay, guys, you've all had your water. Do you know what this place will now be named? This one place is given two names. Let's call this place Masa because this is where all of you tested God. Let's also name this place Meribah because this is where you all quarreled with God. You all have your thirst quenched now. You all feel happy right now. Don't forget what you did here. Here's a place that's geographically renamed because of their sin. What do we do with a scene like this? What is it that Israel's doing that's so bad? What is it in this text that they do that ends up getting referenced in other passages? We'll look at at least one of them in just a little bit. But this text emphasizes that the sin of the people in verse 7 is that they tested the Lord and they're saying, is the Lord among us or not? There's their sin. They're testing God. What does it mean to test somebody? Remember back to your days when you were in school and the superior, the teacher was the one that was able to say, okay, we got a pop quiz today, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see, do you know this? Do you know that? Have you been paying attention to the things that I've been trying to teach you? The person that gets the right to test is the superior, and they have the right to test the inferior. There's something wrong when the inferior thinks that they have the right to test the superior. And in fact, in this context... God has been the one that's been testing his people. In the scripture reading that we had, in Exodus 15.25, it says, and there he tested them. In the next story, in Exodus 16, verse 4, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Two stories in a row, God is the one that's saying, okay, I'm the one that's the superior. I'm the one that can see what's in your heart. I'm the one that can put you in difficult situations to see how you react, to see how you learn how to trust me. But in this scene here, the Israelites have reversed it. Um, this is the height of arrogance. For you to go to the creator of the world, for you to go to the one that has all wisdom and think that you know better than him and to think that you've got the right to suggest to him that maybe you're missing something, God. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever had to occur to God? These people don't understand this. C.S. Lewis in his essay, God in the Dock, there's a book called God in the Dock, and there's, it's named after one of the essays in this larger book. But he's got this quote in this, in, his, in this essay where it says, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. In other words, with humility. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. 
But mankind is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is in, on the bench and God is on the dock. Uh, in the studies that I've done with skeptics and atheists, one of the things that I've pointed out to them is that before the Enlightenment, you don't find any philosophers giving the argument of why would God allow evil and suffering? Why would a good God allow evil and suffering? There's no philosophers before the Enlightenment that wrote that down as an argument against the existence of God. The reason being is because back then, people, if they believed that there was a God that was all-wise and all-powerful, I might not know what all the reasons are, and just because I don't understand something doesn't mean that God is the one that's wrong. Maybe I'm the one who just doesn't have access to all the information. Now, lest we think that this doesn't apply to us, and it just applies to all those atheists out there, I'll remind you of what verse 1 says in this text. They were camping and following the commandment of the Lord. They were doing what God told them to do. They're not a bunch of atheists here. They're doing what God asked them to do. And it's precisely because of their obedience to God that they're in this situation. And maybe they think that if we're doing what God has told us to do, then life should be going better than this. But God, why are you giving us no water once again? Makes me think, whether or not we ever lodge lawsuits against God, we who obey God. Uh, do we ever sue God over his goodness? God, I've been doing what you've been telling me to do. God, I've been, I've been, I've been trying to just obey everything that you've said, but it seems like because of my obedience I'm in this difficult situation. God, are you even that good? Why is all these things happening in my life? I've been trying to obey you. As if you think that your obedience to him ought to make everything in your life go really, really well. Have you ever lodged that complaint against And I'm not saying, by the way, that it would be wrong if there's a lot of difficulties in your life to wonder in a genuine way, why is this happening? But it's a whole other thing to say, God, I think you're just missing something. Or to have this haughty attitude against him as if you've got some kind of right to be bitter towards him. Have you ever sued God over his providence? I remember when um, Brent and I did a meeting here, and Brent had calculated how many days he had been alive. Remember when he, Brent calculated how many days he had been alive? And then he said, but tomorrow I'm not sure God will take care of me. I've been alive for over 12,390 days now, but I'm not sure because I'm seeing in the news that there's uh, increase in grocery prices, and I don't have to just see that on the news. I see that every time I go to the grocery store, and so I'm, I'm really wor worried if God's going to keep taking care of me, and i got all these things that the news is telling me to worry about. I'm just not sure that you're going to take care of me next week. Have you ever tested God in that way? What, have, you ever, have you ever sued God over his power? In this text, in verse 3, they think that they've been brought out here to die in the wilderness. God, you don't have the power to do something about our circumstances. And maybe they just can't see what God is trying to do. Maybe that's actually the problem. But do you, have you ever had some kind of enslaving sin in your life that you plan your schedule around? And when everybody else is gone from the house, you're making sure that you're running towards that sin and you're going to do that. You know what, what emotion is the most addictive emotion according to 
psychologists, whatever they know anyways, is anger. You ever just continually struggled with, even when you're not around anybody else, you punch the steering wheel when you're frustrated or something like, you know why that's not good? It keeps cascading. Have you ever felt like you were so addicted and in bondage to some kind of sin and an old dog can't learn new tricks? You're suing God over his power. You might not say it that way, but that's exactly what you're doing. The next generation of Israelites, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving three speeches, at least three speeches, to the new generation. And he's telling this new generation, don't be like these people. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Do you remember, you can imagine Moses t talking to some of these uh, adults now that would have remembered this day. And he says, do you guys remember when your mom and dad we're filing this lawsuit. Do you remember how God st still took care of all of them? Don't do that. Because you guys are about to go and see more giants in the land and you're finally going to be at the... Don't, don't do it. Do, you, do we do this? This is Israel's sin. This is what it means to test the Lord. But there's something else to see from this in light of Israel's sin is you have to be struck with God's patience despite their sin. It seems like everybody in this story is losing patience. The Israelites are wondering if they're going to die in the wilderness. They're pretty convinced that they are. In verse 4, Moses is saying, what shall I do with these people? And it seems like the only one that's not losing patience here is God. And this is the mean God of the Old Testament. The God that's always destroying everybody and incinerating everybody. This is the way that people oftentimes think of the God of the Old Testament, which he does do that at times. But look at God's patience here. Even though the Israelites have seen the ten plagues, they've crossed the Red Sea, they've been given bread from heaven, they've been given water before this, here the Israelites have been given everything that they needed. And for them to say, is the Lord among us or not? How egregious to say something like that. Um, in this scene where we get the names Meribah and Masa. This is where we're introduced to these names in the Scripture. And these places are used and mentioned in several other places in the Bible. is uh, mentioned at least five times. Meribah's mentioned around 11 times. And then there's other passages that don't even name these places that are still referencing this story. As if there's more things written about this story than there is found in the text of the story itself. In other words, this is such an egregious sin, that they're, what they're doing here, that in future generations, these stories keep getting brought up again and again and again to help us learn. But you think about this in your own life. Have you found yourself filing lawsuits against God? And in your life, there should be different cities that should be renamed. I remember growing up in Forest Lake, Minnesota, and being a Christian, living there for two years. Forest Lake should be renamed because of all the bad attitudes that I had. And then I moved to Nashville, and I should think about Nashville in a different kind of name because to me it's not Nashville, to me it's Massa or Meribah. And then I moved to San Diego, and I had become so mature that I never filed any lawsuits against God, except that's not how it happened. 
And then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, Massa and Meribah, yeah, that place should be renamed. And I've only been in Bowling Green for a year, and already that place should be renamed as well. And in all of this, look at what God's not doing. He's not incinerating all of them. Why is God being so patient with these people? Why is it, in all the places in your life that should be renamed, why is God being patient with you? Reminds me of a couple passages in the New Testament. In uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Or do not presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that we, any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know why God shows patience to people? He's not saying it's okay that you continue in your arrogant attitude. It's not okay that you keep filing these lawsuits against God as if you think that you, you know better than God does and he's missing something. What he's doing is he's being patient with you for you get to get to a point of humility so that you'll change, so that you'll grow. Are you making the best use of God's patience towards you? Or are you coasting? Assuming that it must be okay that I keep having the attitudes that I'm having. Now, if that's God's patience, what does God do in His patience for these people as they're committing this sin? He just keeps giving them what they need. Um, he meets their needs. God has been meeting their needs up to this point. They cried out for deliverance and God leads them through the Red Sea with the ten plagues. They're, they're, they need water, and he's giving them water. He's giving them bread, and he's giving them bread. And all the while, they're having all of these terrible attitudes. Um, and the way that God is providing for them is in very unlikely places. When Samantha and I lived in uh, Nashville, the, at the Green Hills Mall area, there's the, um, what's the, is it Whole Foods? Is that what it's called? that we don't have those like anywhere else really we've lived, at least really accessible to us. But Samantha and I would go there a lot, and we saw that they had these juicing machines, and we thought that was pretty cool. So we got a juicer at our own uh, apartment, and uh, we started like juicing a ton of things. We tried juicing all kinds of things. But one thing that we never tried juicing was a rock. We never thought, well, maybe we'll be able to get some kind of nutrients from a rock, but here, Moses is told, you go to this rock and you strike it, and I know it doesn't make any sense to you, but from this unlikely place will flow rivers of living water. And maybe one metaphorical lesson that we can learn from that is that God has very unlikely ways of providing you exactly what you need. You, you go back to your darkest days, the deepest trials that you've ever had, and if you found through that, that God gave you exactly what you needed in those times of trial, and it grew you, and it helped you in ways, and in fact, maybe you understood certain kinds of joys that you never knew prior to that. Helped you depend on Him more than you ever did. Maybe there's a metaphorical lesson in that. But of all the unlikely ways in which your thirst could be quenched, think about Jesus, who had no former majesty that anybody should behold him and think anything uh, about him, be impressed with him by any earthly metric. 
First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 says, Our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank for the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Look at all the parallels that Paul's making between this generation and us. They all passed through the Red Sea. We've all been baptized into Christ. We're all eating the spiritual bread, and the bread is Jesus who came down, and we eat his flesh, and we drink his blood, and we take in everything that he taught, and that's what we consume. And we also drink from this spiritual drink, which is compared to this rock. You don't get water from a rock. You don't fulfill all your desires from a plain man that never wrote a book that had a band of 12 people who followed him that by earthly standards are not the people to start a nation with. But nonetheless, Jesus says in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And this is during the Feast of Booths in John 7 and 8. Do you know what the Feast of Booths commemorated? The time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And in John 7 and 8, Jesus will say things like, I'm the light of the world. You guys sure needed the light in the wilderness to guide you. Do you know what else you needed in the wilderness? Is you needed water. And I'm the embodiment. I'm the fulfillment of all of those things. And so often in my life, I've tried to drink from the wrong sources. From all the things that the world tells you is going to fulfill you, money, intelligence, education, relationships, whatever, all of these things we think are going to quench our thirst because the world says, well, that's where you would do it. You certainly would never be quenched by a rock. How do people look at Jesus? It's just like that rock that can't give you anything until you trust God and you see that that's actually the only place that the thirst-quenching water will come from. What did it take for this water to come from the rock? Moses had to strike it. It was as if God was the one who was being accused as being guilty in the wilderness. And He's the one who stands in the dock, and He's the one who allows Himself to be executed. And when that happens, all of these blessings come forth. One day, God became a man, and people lodged all kinds of accusations against him, thought that they knew better than him, and he went through a kangaroo court as this mob was calling out for his death. And in John 19, 34, when Jesus was on the cross, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Why is it that the blood and the water came out at the same time? And I guess doctors and people scientifically have pointed out that for the blood and the water to come out at the same time is a way of really proving that he actually died. But maybe there's also a callback to John 7, 37. Maybe there's a callback to this rock in the wilderness that the only way that you were ever going to have your needs met in the wilderness is if the rock was struck and from that striking came water. When Jesus was struck, yes, blood had to come out. He was executed. But along with the blood came this water that symbolizes the thirst-quenching water that He'll give us in the wilderness as well. 
Have you ever filed a lawsuit against God? You realize that in our sinful attitudes that we need to be self-aware of, God is patient with us, and God bore up under the, the penalty of being found guilty in the eyes of man so that He could become the Lamb of God from whom we drink and drink deeply so that all of our, th- all of our, our thirst can be quenched in Him and in Him alone. Is anybody here tonight that's not been drawing from that provision and not been making the Lord the rock from which you drink? This is an opportunity to get your life right with God. We're about to sing this song. If anybody has any needs tonight, you can either come forward during this song or you can talk to somebody before you leave here, but do something to get your life right with God. If there's anybody that needs to see and understand in a more deep, deeper way what it is that the Lord expects of you. There's people here that I know would be willing to study with you on a weekly basis. But if there's anything that we can do for you now, please come forward while we stand, while we sing.